Welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving? A Global Venture Exploring How to Use Your Gifts and Talents to Make a Difference. I'm joined by my good-looking friend, Jay Mormon, who apparently edited my notes a little bit. Hey, yeah, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. Hey, Kelsey, how's it going? It's going well. This is our first, uh, I mean, it's not really going well anywhere right now because this no. is our actual first recording since COVID-19 has brought the world to a screeching halt and um, yeah. Yeah. how how are things in your world? Well you know it's uh, it's been work from home. I've got uh, both my college students back home, an extra dog, uh, grocery bills have gone up, <clears throat> uh, the house isn't as clean as it was and those are just the minor issues so uh, we're surviving. It's it's certainly something we'll remember, but it's good to be together as a group, especially right now. How about yeah. you? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, some great times of spending more time with the family, walking to a, a river that's accessible out the back door that we've been doing that a lot and just walking out there into nature and just like, man, that boulder doesn't care about any of this. That tree was here, you know, 200 years ago and it'll be here a hundred years from now. Like it doesn't, like we'll get through it. Oh, it is it is it is a good way to find peace i agree i've been i've been taking pre eight o'clock walks um out around the uh the just close to the wide y m c a around here and um just to to feel the air and it's been nice enough outside right it's been a little chilly but um there's no one out at seven yeah. o'clock in the morning there's no cars leaving for work so it's very peaceful and uh well, I have ground. a pair of rubber boots here for you when you're ready to walk, you know, six feet away from me. I know. Yes, we'll have to st stay awesome. way apart. If my boot gets stuck, though, who's going to pull me out? I don't know. Uh, you just have to that just be a, you know, another. I casual. grew up playing in creeks. I love them. Catch some early spring crawdads and Today stick we them in the house. Saw, uh, was walking with the kids and we saw a big old snapping turtle that was in like Oof. a small creek. And it was just hanging out there. Those, those, those things, things are prehistoric, and I'm convinced evil at the same time. They sure. look, they look nasty. Scary. Um, anyway, what are we talking about today? Well, uh, we're talking about this a little bit. We have a really cool guest on today. I'm excited to talk about. I've known for a while, but before we get to that, I know that uh, we've had time to watch some movies recently. Any movie that you care to talk about? Uh, well, you know, this week with uh, the kids, we watched uh, Jojo Rabbit. I had read that it was uplifting. and So weird, uh, so weird that uh, set in Nazi Germany, uplifting. I know, and a, main, and a main character is Hitler, and it was uplifting. I don't yeah. hard to understand, but it was. I loved it. I loved every minute of it, and it was well done. It was creative, and um, I don't know. It was, it was a great movie. What would you think of it? Well, it was so, I watched it on an airplane when I was flying to South America back in the days when you could travel around the world. Um, and I watched The Joker first, and I absolutely mm. loved The Joker. And and I don't know if I'm supposed to feel like a bad person because I love The Joker, but I love The Joker. And then I, um, through like in and out of sleep, I had on Jojo Rabbit. Mm. And it was just like, such, it seemed like such a sweet movie. And to me, them paired together was really interesting because like the Joker is what happens when we stop caring about people all together. And when people stop caring about 
you know, them, the people stop caring about themselves. And, you know, here Jojo Rabbit is in the setting of like the worst, you know, one of the worst things that's ever happened in modern history of how humans have treated each other. And it's like this movie full of like sweetness and goodness and um, yeah, the, it bad. it is it is interesting. Those two movies in juxtaposition with each other. I I I love the Joker for the same reason you did, and you know it wasn't a stereotypical uh, superhero movie, villain movie, um, because there were moments that I felt so terrible for him and he didn't have anybody and he was left alone and it drove him to drive power from somewhere else. Right. Other than relationships. Um, and you know, the little boy and Jojo rabbit really ended up having nobody spoiler alert and, um, had to, to come through this really dangerous, difficult situation with small relationships that ended up being really important mm-hmm. and that helped him sustain through, you know, world war two Germany. Crazy. Yeah, uh, in the Joker, I thought it was supposed to be like this. Uh, I was concerned it's going to be like the senseless violence, and it is senseless viol- violence. But I thought more than anything, it was a society that had senseless uh, unkindness that yeah. created him. And I was almost more appalled by the violence of that than yeah. like what it led him to do. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the future movies of that because that character. Yeah, you know, yeah, I think. Well, interestingly enough, and I'm a big Batman fan, as you know, but <clears throat> it does make for a more nuanced world. Um, Batman's always been just good, right? And they've hinted at it, you know, like in the um, uh, the Dark Knight, you know, it was like, are you going to be as bad as the Joker? Or do you have to go that far? And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> well, in this, you know, maybe Batman's going to be this sort of uh, character that is a spoiled rich kid who views crime as a just an evil choice that people make um which depending on your perspective it's not my perspective but some people might think that he might be a spoiled rich kid uh, and the joker is perspective for him it may not be as black and white as the movies usually are so i I, we'll see i hope it's as good as uh the joker was yeah i mean each of those movies are kind of reflected like tough times and in the world and mm-hmm. times where you know, people feel isolated and some people come together and uh, yeah. which kind of leads into a little bit to today's story where we talk a little bit about COVID-19 and the, and the interview as well. Um, but I, today's guest is uh, reporter Victoria Milko and she's a Southeast Asia-based uh, health and science reporter for the Associated Press when she's based in Jakarta. And so we talked to her, she was kind of, uh, you know, trapped in her apartment because of the you know sequestration and isolation that's yeah. happening and so she previously was a freelancer writer and multimedia journalist based in uh, Myanmar which is where I first met her in person when I was going to I was researching where am I giving and I was uh, went there because it was the, the the most giving country on earth and so I went there and I put out a request on Facebook if anyone knew anyone there and of course you know, she said that she was there. And so she's, her work has um, taken her from health clinics in rural Bangladesh to protests in the streets of Myanmar, to the refugee camps of Thailand and beyond. Her work has been recognized with Associated uh, Society of Publishers in Asia, as well as Human Rights Press Awards. And she's probably most well-known, Jay, for writing a piece about a 
up-and-coming author from Indiana who was visiting a school in Maryland. Uh, Interesting. A guy named Kelsey Timmerman. I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, she did write an article about me uh, way back in the day, not that long ago. But, but it didn't um, propel her to fame or anything. I don't think it won her any human rights awards. Oh, no, okay. It was just, she was a grad student. We, we talk about that a little bit. And we just talk about um, what her life is like and, and uh, being a reporter around the world and living and where she's living and reporting the subjects that she's reporting on. So I think it's a really uh, good one for people to dive into, especially at this moment. So we'll get to it. Victoria Milko, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So where in the world are you this morning? I'm currently sitting in Jakarta, Indonesia, in my one little bedroom studio apartment. Yeah, so the it's not quite a normal day uh, anywhere in the world right now with the COVID-19, but what will your day look like today? Um, so I am a health and science reporter for the Associated Press, so I spend a lot of time on the phone with people around the world, talking about what's going on right now, seeing how it's impacting people, looking at different communities, what they're doing, how they're responding. Um, I mean, and maybe at some point I'll like put on an actual real outfit or get out of my pajamas, but it's always up for debate. Um, but at this point I've kind of become a keyboard journalist. I sit at my computer a lot of the time, which is very strange for me. I'm much more used to being out in the field, speaking to people, taking photos, recording audio. So it's a bit of a change, but it is for everyone, I'm sure. So what uh, stories will be working on today and where will those stories be focused on? Sure. So I am currently working on two stories. One is about how infectious diseases around the world are going to be suffering from this, whether it's tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, AIDS, as the world kind of turns its attention to this very important and horrible virus that's wrecking our world. Um, medical health professionals are really struggling to see what they can do to keep a fo like focus and attention on things that they've been working on for years and that billions of dollars have been poured into. And most often it kind of hits these, you know, struggling socioeconomic classes and people who typically don't have care and access in the first place. So especially now as we go into lockdown around the world and borders close, I'm really interested in seeing how that impacts other diseases. Um, as well as I'm looking at how indigenous communities around the world are responding to the virus and what risk they're at for the virus right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's always the, the same people that get hit by the, the, the most vulnerable people that get hit by whether it's climate change or natural disasters or, and I think right now we're kind of at a time where, at least in the United States, it's hard for us to see beyond our own problems in terms of our, in terms of our media, like you want to even, you know, we're not even thinking about what's happening in other places. I, I, that's not a good thing, um, especially with a disease and a virus like this, that it's, if it's somewhere, it's, it's, could be everywhere. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, I've been living outside the United States for almost five years now, and I grew up entirely in the States, I'd never left the country until I think I turned like 19 or something, mm -hmm. but I'm constantly reminding myself of my own privilege, and I'm constantly trying to write to show the other side of what's going on. Like I, I just wrote a piece with one of my coworkers looking at, you know, the idea of social distancing, and how do you social distance if you share a one-bedroom you know, 20 by 20 meter home with five other people, including your grandma and maybe the person that raises chickens next door and things like that. So it's constantly a reminder of the privilege that I have, but also that even some of the poorest people in America still 
competitive advantage some most of the time to the poorest people or even the middle class in other countries. Yeah, I think about the, you know, the informal settlements that I've been to in Kenya and in India and they are afraid of being locked down right now because I mean, they won't be allowed to leave their community in their community. They have to pay money to use a shared bathroom to get water, to wash their clothes. Um, and they have no way to make money. So they'll just be trapped there. And it's just terrifying to think yeah. about. Yeah. We're here hoarding toilet paper. The other side of it, it's really, I mean, it is a horrible situation for so many people around the world, but I think something that has kind of kept me afloat and that I find really wonderful is that there's also so many people that start to practice innovation during this time too, right? I'm really interested in seeing how different people living in situations like that, how different groups that deliver health and different grassroots organizations adapt to this and manage to somehow still get it done. Because I really think that as humans, we're just these like very resilient creatures. It might just take a virus to wipe us out entirely, but in general, I think how we adapt to things and how we continue on with life. I mean, you look at places like, you know, the Gaza Strip and weddings and births and birthday parties and things like that still continue all the time. And I think that as we adjust to this new norm, it's going to be interesting to see how we as humans change, you know, whether it be singing on the balconies or putting signs up in our windows or communicating over things like Zoom now instead. Yeah, how are you, how are you seeing the culture react? I mean, I think right now all of us are kind of in this, a little bit of shock, but also in grief. It's just a different type of grief, right? Um, how, how, how do you see people reacting there? The culture is different, people are different. Um, how do they feel? Um, it's hard for me to comment on Indonesia in the same expertise that I could about other places because I've only been here for about a month and as you know most of that time has been spent in lockdown right, so right. I sit from my 17th story balcony and just kind of watch things but I, I talk to people a lot because it's my job to talk to people and I mean there's there's different aspects right Indonesia is a massive archipelago of different religions and cultures and ethnic groups and how people respond to it could be deciding something is God's will, something can be being a person in a metropolitan informal housing area that is just trying to survive on the day by day. Um, I think at this point, pretty much everyone's heard of it. It's just a matter of how they can react to it. And life kind of seems to just continue here, right? And I think that's why we don't have the huge lockdown where people can't leave their homes right now is because you just have to keep going. There's no way you can just lay down and stop. And again, people here most often don't have the opportunity to not go in the countryside, go plow their fields or here in the city, try to sell newspapers on the sidewalk and things like that. So yeah. I've always said, and I might get in some hot water for this, but I've always said that like the West kind of has this hysteria to it. And right now for good reason, right? Like things are really bad right now. But I think that the rest of the world is just so constantly in a turbulent tumble of its own, whether it be natural disasters, economy crashes, war, that people just kind of are like, yeah, this is just another thing that we have to keep plowing. Yeah, through. well, we, we, it's all, I mean, this is a conversation we've been having in our houses. This is about expectations and our expectations were different. And, you know, and, and this certainly isn't true for every American, but for the most part, people had their own plans. They, you know, there isn't war ravaging and, and um, uh, you know, um, hunger isn't a 
right outside my front door problem. So for all of us, it's like, oh, wait a minute. They didn't have any chicken today at the grocery store. That's really disappointing and frustrating and disturbing. Or to your point, many other countries have so many other big issues going on. This is just another part of that process. Um, so they say, yep, okay, we got to deal with this too. But um, I think for suburban America and, and you know places like Manhattan, this is a major interruption of their their expectations of their life, right? It's di it certainly is different. I didn't think about it that way. Yeah, I mean, I turned 30 last week and I love a good party and I was devastated by the fact that I was sitting alone in my apartment by myself with no friends. But I was like, you know, and I think that's the day that I was like, you know what, this is it. It's just the reality we have and there's nothing you can do to fight it. And you just kind of got to like go with the flow. You got to bend your knees and roll. You got to keep going because what else are you going to do? So true. Yeah, I mean, you've done some, uh, and only 30, and you, you've done some really cool things. Uh, refugee, from visiting refugee camps, reporting refugee camps, and mines, and health clinics, and cockfights, and you've <laughs> followed store, stories to places, I'm sure that, like, when you, you couldn't imagine that you would end up in those places. Is there a time or a story uh, that you pursued that, um, just that you really had, a, I can't believe I'm here and seeing this kind of moment that stands I, out to you. I think I feel that way almost all the time. Like there's hundreds of those moments where I constantly just stop and look at where I am or what I'm doing and it's normal to me. But then I think about me maybe seven years ago when I was like, how could I ever be a foreign correspondent, right? And I'm like, wow, it's incredible that I'm here. Um, I think the moment that always comes to mind most is that I often place myself in situations, but then of course things go not to plan and I end up in a completely different situation. And two years ago, I was in Northern Myanmar, which is now the longest ongoing conflict in the world and over 70 years now. And my coworker and I had plans to go to one place. And then the next thing you know, we're told, hey, we can get you access to this other place. And it's just one of those parts of the country that you can't get to, there's no access, it's filled with landmines, there's active military movement all the time. And I found myself on the back of a motorcycle, like thigh deep, chest deep in mud at certain points, going through the mountains and, you know, these winding beautiful mountains in the Burmese countryside that barely any foreigners have ever seen. And I just was like, what am I doing right now covered in mud, but also feeling just so lucky and so privileged to be there and to tell the stories that we were able to tell from that region and come back um, thinking about those different places that I saw on the ride. I always think about this like tiny little hut that was like basically three pieces of bamboo on the side of a mountain overlooking a massive rice terrace and just other beautiful things. So I mean, it's constantly, even just walking through Jakarta, I know it's a major metropolitan area that's been quite well trod, but it's incredible to think that I actually get paid to be here on a regular basis. So what was that story in Myanmar that you were? So it's a bit grim. Um, there had, we had heard that one of the armed ethnic organizations and the Burmese military had gotten into a fight. And long story short, the Burmese military had, um, they essentially made a mass grave. They, there was medics from this certain armed ethnic organization that were assaulted and killed and there was no one that could go up there there was no one that had proof of it all we saw were just like some blurry photos coming out and we were halfway there not with the intention to go there we we're going somewhere else and 
my coworker and I had someone's like, we can take you there. We can get you there to go and document this. And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, we have a moral obligation as humans to go and document this and to go try to see what we can do about this. And this is something that represents the larger impunity that some of these armed ethnic groups and the Burmese military get away with on a daily basis. So there we were, found ourselves, me with my camera equipment in a plastic bag, like clutched to my chest and my coworker on another motorbike going up the side of the mountain, um, getting to the site and being like, neither one of us have ever documented something like this. Like, what do we do right now? Uh, collecting different things we found at the scene, taking pictures, speaking to family members. And yeah, that was it. And then we spent the night in the village, like looking at each other, like what's gonna happen? And the next morning got back on the bikes and went back down the mountain. So you actually made it all the way there. We did. So we got to the site and it was like, you know, misty mountains. And it's just, it's always like gently sprinkling like Seattle kind of, you know, and um, we got there and we're like, okay, so this is it. And we didn't really see anything. And then they point over and you can see where there's a bunch of spent ammunition casings and they point in the other direction. And there's where a car had been pushed over the mountain and unexploded. Um, landmines and things like that and then we were like hey you know can we talk to the family can we talk to the villagers so we made it and we are the only independent party that made it there to document it the documentation has been sent to the United Nations and Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and all these different organizations um, and, and I think people often ask they're like why do you do what you do and what are you most proud of and I think I'm most proud of in some ways that because it made a big impact and it got a lot of attention. And I, the next year somehow found myself not in the same place, but with some of the family members from that village. And they're like, yes, we saw that that made it in the magazine. And we were so happy that someone knows what happened to here. Like, thank you so much. Um, and that's better than any front page of the Washington Post or any, you know, award that you get or anything like that. So yeah, I think that's the biggest one. I constantly still am a little shell-shocked by it still, and I do talk about PTSD and trauma in different situations and different levels of trauma and how you can deal with that, but it's like, yeah, I think about that. That was pretty wild. We were, we're in the middle of a war zone and documented a mass grave unexpectedly on like a Tuesday. Yeah. So how, how, do, you, how do you deal with that, <laughs> like processing that experience? I think my friends joke and often get frustrated with me too because I process, I process emotions pretty quickly. Um, I think my coworker and I that covered it talk about it sometimes. I think talking to other people about it. Um, I think not being judgmental of whatever level of trauma you have, right? Like there are people that are in Yemen dealing with constant issues and how they deal with what's going on there versus dealing with witnessing death and destruction or different things, right? But you know, one person might be triggered by one thing, another by another. And I think just being really open and processing it, right? And not trying to be, not trying to have a certain bravado about it. I was like, yeah, that was really scary and really sad. And I think at the end of the day, I find solace because it did make a difference. And we do have direct documentation that can be yeah. put forth at the International Criminal Court. We have direct documentation that can go into human rights reports that will be referenced for the next however many years and things like that. Um, which is why when I talk to people about risk and assessing risk, I'm like, what's the outcome of taking that risk? Yeah. Are you doing something that will have an impact that is worth putting yourself and other people in danger? Or are you, yeah. are you doing it because you want the adrenaline rush? And I think most journalists will tell you there's definitely both, right? I think yeah. it's being 
um, a little vain if you don't admit that you also want the adventure side of things sometimes too. Yeah, I feel like that, uh, you know, a good, not saying it's therapy, but the fact that you are, some action comes out of those experiences of, of that raising that larger awareness that has to help kind of uh, you process everything and make it um, more worth it to have, have done that. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I garden, you know, there's those basic things too. <laughs> I drink lots of water and I garden. So, yeah. Are you, do you have a garden right now going? On? <laughs> so I have lived in cities for a long time now and as a foreigner in cities too, right? Where it's much harder to own land typically. So I typically have tons of pots just placed on every surface. And I was only here a few weeks before everything started shutting down. But I looked over today, I keep looking over at it right now because I had, my plants started getting their first leaves, like my monstera is unfolding a new leaf and my pathos is now new vines climbing and things like that. So it was the first thing I bought. I bought that before I actually bought toilet paper. <laughs> That's great. Well, yeah. uh, do you remember how we first got connected? I do. I actually was thinking about this. I was like, how do I even know this guy? And I remember that I was at the University of Maryland getting my grad degree. I was in the journalism school because no one would give me an internship. No one would let me write for them. They're like, oh, you have to be a college student. So I was like, all right, I'm going to get a scholarship and go to grad school part time so that I can get into an internship. And it worked. But I had to, in my first entry level writing class at grad school for journalism, they're like, you need to write it was like eight articles. And I was like, cool, great, done. And I contacted a local paper in Maryland who wanted me to write about your book and write about you. And that's how we met. And then we met again. Well, we met for the first time in person in Myanmar when you were visiting, doing research for your another book that you wrote. Yeah, that was totally a time of just put it out there on Facebook. Like, hey, I'm going to Myanmar. Does anyone know anybody there? Inevitably, you know, somebody does or somebody lives there, which is fantastic. So I went and I uh, read the article that you wrote. Um, <laughs> about me. And this sounds completely self-serving. Tell me, tell me more about writing about me. But um, I, there was a, <laughs> there was a quote uh, that you ended with uh, that said, uh, where I guess I said, find something to be curious about, pursue those questions and do your best to make a difference. And like, it just really struck me that like, not saying that you took my advice, but like you are totally doing that, which is absolutely amazing and phenomenal. So what was that journey like from, from uh, grad school to get to, I mean, was Myanmar your next stop? And how, what was your path like? Um, so I always start, I promise I'm not going to go through my life story, but I always like to mention people that my father's side of the family were refugees from Yugoslavia. And I think that like inherently there is some genetic thing inside of me that constantly keeps me moving and constantly keeps me wondering about other places um, and seeking out, especially displaced populations, populations that are disadvantaged. So I always dreamt of being a foreign correspondent, I had no idea how to do it. You have to remember that I'm a millennial. So September 11th, 2008 financial crisis, constant wars, right? Like we're pretty disenchanted with the system, I think most of the time. Um, and especially growing up in Washington DC, which had lots of economic hardships and continues to. Um, yeah, but I, I, 
bartended and worked at bars and restaurants for years to put myself through school and to live in Washington, D.C. and be engaged with the art community. And at one point, I was like, you know, I really want to be a journalist. Like, this is what I want to do. So my friend at the Washington Post Express um, was like, I approached her and said, hey, I want to take photographs because my, my dad is a photo, my photographer, he's a rock and roll photographer and Georgetown University's photographer. So I've always been around cameras. And I was like, hey, I want to take pictures. I want to get involved and be a photojournalist. And she was like, well, can you write? And I was like, oh yeah, I can write. And then that's when she hired me to start doing work is because I could write and do photographs. And then I wanted to get into bigger things. I wanted to go um, cover kind of social injustice issues. I wanted to go overseas, but I couldn't get anyone to let me. Obviously it costs a lot of time and money and there's a lot of people vying for those positions. Um, and I ultimately found out, okay, I have to get an internship. So that way I can get in and show everyone how great I am. And then all the intern places were like, nope, you have to be a college student because then we don't have to pay you and all the different labor laws that exist in the United States. So I enrolled in the University of Maryland part-time. I was categorized as an out-of-state student because I'm from, I was in Washington, DC, which meant my tuition doubled in the matter of 24 hours. So I said to them, hey, I can't afford this. I'm going to go part-time and I'll work a graduate assistantship while also working at this restaurant so I can afford to live. I don't live at home with my mom and dad. And yeah, I managed to weasel my way, in, my way into an internship at National Public Radio, which was great. But before that, I had summer vacation and I was applying for internships and I got two internships acceptances. I could go to, I think it's upstate New York, one of the big upstate New York papers, or I got an offer to go to this place called Myanmar. I just visited Myanmar for fun a few months before and had come across this English language magazine and was like, oh, English, I'm so happy to see English, and contacted them and was like, hey, I'm really great, you should let me work for you. And they said yes. And my university actually said to me, they're like, you know, you should really go to New York. No one cares about Myanmar, no one knows about Myanmar. And I was just, you know, and I, I really believe them because you look up to these professors uh, that are great and talented and wonderful. And finally, I was like, it just doesn't feel right. I have to go to Myanmar. I'm never going to forgive myself if I don't go to Myanmar. And that was it. Went to Myanmar, had a great time, hung out with cockfighters, went to gold mines, you know, went through mangroves, all these different things. Um, went back to University of Maryland for one more semester before dropping out, breaking up with my boyfriend of three years, packing up all my stuff and just moving to Myanmar to be full time. That's amazing. I want to you know, I would like to live multiple lives. Uh, if I get to come back, which I guess would be very uh, uh, Buddhist maybe, um, but I would love to come back one life just to play video games. I'm not gonna lie, I don't <laughs> play any video games now, but I would love to. And, and like what you're doing sounds completely uh, something I would like to dedicate one of those lives to, it's so cool. Um, how, how long were you in Myanmar? Oh God, almost four years, I finally looked at it. Um which I was just talking with one of my best friends. And I was like, you know, I still feel like I left Washington DC last year. Like, I think it's only been a few years, but then I see pictures of my friend's kids that are now talking and getting ready to go to kindergarten and things like that. And I'm like, what? That's a real human now. Um, yeah, so four years. I really thought I was gonna be there for the long haul. Um, but me and Mark kind of went through this ebb and flow of everyone was really excited because Aung San Suu Kyi, a former political prisoner, and it was now heading the government, which was democratically elected for the first time, and businesses were opening, and things were exciting. 
But we quickly began to realize, we being the media and I think people of Burma watchers and things like that, that freedom was just an illusion and that freedom of the press was indeed not in place. Um, freedom of movement was something that was still severely restricted. And it's just hard to be there sometimes if you don't have a lot of money. And as a free, mostly freelancing, I didn't have a ton of money. So I didn't have, you know, hot running water most of the time. I didn't have constant electricity. Um, and safety, safety and security was a big thing as well too. And I love Myanmar and I really care about it. I think it's interesting, but I also realized that I can always come back to it and that it needed to be time to go do something else. So I got a job at Associated Press. Yeah, that's great. So how in those four years um, did you see Myanmar? And I, first of all, I'd like to thank you so much because you really helped me uh, by meeting up with me and kind of giving me a lay of the land. And I was there for not that long of a time and, and you know, totally a, a parachute kind of in thing. And you know, here you are there for the long haul. So I, I really appreciated you kind of helping me. Uh, should I call it Myanmar? Should I call it Burma? And then you kind of <laughs> taught me how that's like, uh, well, it kind of depends on, it's kind of making a political statement, uh, depending on kind of what you say. And uh, tell me about the journalist that could get that you could get easily locked up from some like bullshit law that they had. I'm sure that they're still probably in existence. And um, then you know I was there because it was the most generous country on the planet, and I, I was also aware of um, you know the longest running civil war and the genocide with the Rohingya. Uh, and part of what attracted me to it was that that conflict between being the most generous country on the planet, according to you know, one survey and then uh, this, this horrible the worst that humanity has to offer existing there as well and and um, I just really appreciate you kind of help me make sense of some of some of that not that it, it can even be made sense of but in your in your four years had you seen the country change or did you see more for more for what it was um so I think the biggest thing I will say when people ask me about Burma is that I had no idea what Myanmar was when the first time I went there. I just got a cheap round trip ticket. I knew that the U.S. had sanctions on it and I knew that bad stuff had happened there. Um, so obviously I was like, oh, I have to go. Um, which is again, like testament to, I think some weird family genetics that must exist somewhere in the line. But I didn't have emotional investment in Aung San Suu Kyi. I hadn't witnessed decades of suffering like a lot of the Burma watchers have sitting on the Thai border. Um, I didn't know. I mean, I remember when I first got there, someone said Rohingya to me and I was like, what? Like, I didn't know the names of the different states or the ethnic groups or anything, um, which I think is good. I think going into a place, knowing everything about it will make you one, a know-it-all without meaning to be. Two, you don't ask as many questions as you should from people who live there and are from there or experts on the place. Um, and three, like you can always learn more, even if you think you know everything. So I didn't go into Burma being like, yes, democracy is here. Love Aung San Suu Kyi. She's so beautiful. I kind of went into it being like, wow, this is a really strange place that I don't understand anything about, which is why I went into it is because also my first time there, I would ask people a lot of questions and no one had answers to any of my questions. And I was like, great, wonderful place to be a foreign correspondent. Um, I think like it, it would slowly build in terms of the heartbreak of realizing that things weren't going to change for people like having different journalist friends arrested at different points, 
ongoing civil conflict in certain areas, laws that people thought were going to be taken off the books, staying intentionally on the books, and sometimes even being made stricter, um, increasing Islamophobia. And then, of course, in 2017, the kind of height of modern-day Rohingya crisis when, you know, close to a million people were driven over the border into Bangladesh. That was pretty wild. And we're sitting in Yangon, which is the New York City of Myanmar. It's not like New York City, but you get the analogy. Um, you know, we're a few hundred miles away. There's a genocide taking place, right? It, it was kind of, I don't know. I think not having that love of Aung San Suu Kyi before kind of saved me. I wasn't heartbroken by her. I wasn't disappointed because I didn't have any expectations. I went into it just ready to learn, ready to ask questions, fascinated by what was going on. I always say that a lot of what's happening in Myanmar can mirror what happened in, and is happening in the Balkans, which is where my family is from, whether it be ethnic religious tensions, ongoing civil conflict, truth and reconciliation, things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm an expert on Burma at this point. I realized that the other day, normally it's a bunch of old white dudes, no offense, that are, you know, experts and like to talk well, about Burma, but I realized I was Jay, like, no, Jay's I'm... old. Jay's old. <laughs> I mean, you're young at heart, right? <laughs> I am white too. That's correct. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm a white girl too. So I think about that a lot in terms of like my expertise and my, my voice and what I can offer that's different than rather than amplifying other local voices. Right. And there's still that question of like, are foreign correspondents even needed anymore? And the answer at the end of the article was sometimes yes. But again, it's kind of shifting, you know, the idea of someone dropping in and just reporting on something is not as acceptable as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, especially 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the metamorphosis of Burma is ongoing. It will ebb and flow at certain points, but obviously it was a big part of my life and me becoming a foreign correspondent. So I'm sure it's something I'll always watch. Can, can you share a little bit about the role think Facebook played in timing the flames of the of the conflict and violence because I don't I think that was one of the first you know the last few years I feel like more people have come to realize with the with the fake with different you know people infiltrating Facebook and the ads and the algorithms that target and kind of incite uh, I think we're more aware of that now in the United States um, than we were before but in like Myanmar really that really was early on I feel like in the when people started to realize wow this is really um, causing lots of problems here so talk about the role of Facebook and some of the violence yeah so Facebook is the internet in Myanmar there is no such thing as the World Wide Web Facebook is the internet for most people and you have to remember that this is a country that didn't have access legally to the internet for a really long time I mean they couldn't they had to sometimes go to internet cafes towards the end of that whole black period of military rule. Um, but imagine snapping all of a sudden into the 21st century and data becoming exceptionally cheap. SIM cards for cell phones used to be thousands of dollars and all of a sudden they become $10. Now they're like 70 cents. Um, and Facebook was already around. The rest of the world was using Facebook. We weren't thinking about data security and privacy and things like that quite yet at that point in the same way as a society. Um, so also Myanmar language is exceptionally unique. Um, it can't be read very easily. You really need to have the nuance of the language to understand it. And 
Facebook didn't have anyone on their staff that could understand it. They didn't have anyone on their staff that could monitor it. So also I think a lot about the fact that this is a society that had very limited means of expression for a very long time. So you go from not being able to say anything to be able to put pictures up and say things and make statements and share things with your auntie out in the villages and all these different things. And I don't know how that feels because I've always had communication available to me. Um, so sometimes I think, you know, the oversharing on Facebook and the use of Facebook is a form of expression for people in the utmost way, much more than we had in the West. Um, I remember being at the but, Pagoda and seeing um, you know, that there's the selfie cam was a big thing to, for a phone to have. And I saw uh, some monks at the Pagoda, like taking selfies. And I'm like, whoa, I thought there like was no self. And it was just like this, like just, it was hard to. It was so pervasive. Monks always have the newest iPhones. Like the monks have the new iPhone before all of us. So that That's is like- That's the most know, generous this, country, the alms giving. Right? Yeah, right? Like this whole idea of like not having anything, there are monks like that, but I've also seen monks that have like, you know, Louis Vuitton iPhone cases and things like that. And I'm like, okay. But um, so Facebook became a form of expression and mass expression. And that coupled with, deep-seated religious and ethnic tensions, what we saw is that it exploded during the ongoing Rohingya crisis and it went completely unchecked because Facebook did not invest in the resources to have people monitoring it. If you look at countries like Germany, they have really strong anti-hate speech laws, obviously because of their own history. And they require Facebook to have German language monitors, um, whereas obviously Myanmar didn't have that sway on Facebook and didn't have those laws in place. So you had people saying, kill the Muslims and all these horrible slurs and calling for individuals who are Muslim to be attacked. And it just spread like a wildfire. And I'm sure there's some like deeper psychological analysis about this that is far beyond my comprehension, but people really latched onto it. And a post saying, kill this Muslim journalist would get shared by thousands of people. And a lot of those accounts were fake. A lot of those accounts were repeat accounts. And there was just no accountability. And I remember some of the earlier days, we'd have to try and contact Facebook directly and be like, hey, take this post down. We've all flagged this post. How are you not taking this post down? It has this guy's address put in it. And that went all the way to the US Congress. My friend's name was mentioned in the US Congress when they were doing the Facebook testimony. Um, and I mean, my picture too, right? Like I've seen my pictures spread around before being like this foreigner, she loves Muslim. She's a Rohingya sympathizer, except they'd never use the word Rohingya. They say Bengali. And thankfully, like, my address wasn't put around that I know of, but there's not a ton of people that look like me in Yangon downtown. So you think about this when you go to cover a nationalist protest or a nationalist rally, where there's a bunch of angry monks who bust people in from all over the country to make it look like they have thousands of supporters locally. Um, yeah, and Facebook was totally unchecked for a long time. And continues to not have enough resources for Myanmar. I know they said they've hired language monitors. It doesn't matter. I'll never forget one time I was talking with Facebook and they're like, oh, well, we accidentally deleted this account from this Northern ethnic group because we couldn't, you know, we can't read Burmese. And I'm like, they don't speak Burmese. They speak English. They don't, <laughs> you know, so which really yeah. caught them in kind of those, like, they didn't know any, they had no idea what they were talking about. Um, honestly, they, Facebook, if you're listening, you should pay me a consultancy fee still. Um, yeah. I feel I mean, like there was the Arab Spring, which is like this high point for like social media of like, ah, it's bringing freedom 
to the world and people are speaking up and standing together and then now this kind of shit happens you know which is pretty severe yeah i think one of the things before this virus kickoff was that i kept saying i think the last 10 years were us you know, utilizing the internet in completely new ways and ramping up the use of the internet. And I'm more interested in this coming decade, which I think is going to be the accountability of the internet and how we reconcile with how the internet has changed the world for better or for worse. Whether it be, you know, Amazon having human rights abuses in their workplace because we can order things in one click or human rights abuses in countries like Egypt or Myanmar. So I'm really interested to see how we reconcile the internet and what it's caused over the last 10 years and what it will continue to cause. Yeah, I look forward to reading that story when you write it. <laughs> so do you do both, you do photos and writing still for the, a, for the AP? You do, you're still kind of doing double duty? So with the AP, because of the virus situation, they're doing a, a really good job of kind of locking us down and making sure they don't put people at risk unless they need to. So one of the things about working with the AP is that you look around and you're like, oh, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. Oh, you're a Pulitzer Prize winner. And you just kind of sit in this room of people that are some of the best people at what they do. So I was always a photographer and writer and videographer and those things because I had to be. Whereas now I look at my coworker next to me and I'm like, oh, you're one of the best photographers in the world. I don't need to take photos. Like my photos aren't going to add anything to this. Um, so especially with the virus, I am not going out especially into these, like, I mean, Jakarta's packed. I'm going, staying in, indoors most of the time. Um, but when setting up the story, I often am like, hey, I've been thinking about this visually, and I think these are the videos we can do. I think these are the photos we can do. And just even thinking about it from all angles rather than just writing a story, I think makes it always a better and more collaborative piece. Mm -hmm. So now that you're- Yeah, I started uh, in um, New York City. Okay. Now that you're, um, you know, you're a foreign correspondent, like you're doing the thing that you wanted to always wanted to do, uh, what surprises you and or frustrates you about the business of news? Mm. That's a great question. Um, yeah, and you know what, and I'll add to that, because that's exactly where I wanted to go is, are you consuming American news. I mean, I know you're producing it, but are you consuming it in the way that we might? Are you, you know, are you looking online at the New York Times and Washington Post and those other places because that's where your stories are going? Or are you only getting local? Because it, it certainly uh, is a different, di different uh, pair of eyes from different places. Yeah, I've been in it so long that I don't even think about that anymore. Um, so in terms of where I'm getting the news, I get the news from everywhere. I get the news from local sources, NGOs, reports, studies. I get the news from the New York Times and the Washington Post. I mean, it's a bit strange. I'm, it's new for me to be a staffer at the level of such as the Associated Press. So like, we are the New York Times, we are the Washington Post. As soon as we push the story out, it can go literally everywhere, right? Um, so being here in Southeast Asia, I try to, I think that local reporters almost always get the story for first, right? They're there, they put it out on their Facebook, they put it out in their like one page newspaper and I pay attention to them and as well as what The Economist is saying. So I'm reading everything. When people are like, turn off your phone and don't read the news, I'm like, that's really cute. I'm glad you can do that. Um, and of course I try to do that for myself occasionally. 
But for the state of news, I mean, I think this is something that everyone has seen headlines and think pieces on, is it's dire. It's been dying well before I even got into it. I picked a dying industry to love and be a part of. Um, there's, you know, advertisement streams are down, fighting disinformation or fake news, as some would say, um, constantly being attacked by different heads of state and different governments. Um, I think, again, there's a level of it in certain parts of the world where as a foreigner, you'll never really understand what you're like, well, explain it to me. Why don't I understand? And then that's another disinformation campaign. But people constantly being like, oh, I can't read this article on Facebook because there's a paywall. It's like, yeah, pay for it. That's someone's job. You pay for your French fries, like pay for your news. Um, and it's tough, right? Like I was a freelancer at first and I was so grateful to make it as a freelancer. Now I'm working for a major news organization and the struggles aren't exactly the same, but they're all connected. And especially with this global financial crisis, I'm really afraid of what's going to happen to newspapers. I mean, Australia just closed down one of its big broadcasting companies. Tons of people got laid off. Newspapers across Asia are closing or on the verge of closing or they get bought by people that are special interest groups. And then if you have a special interest group owning your newspaper, it's not a good thing. Um, so it's hard. And constantly people are like, you need to get out of this industry, go work for the UN, go work for Amnesty International. And I'm like, no, I, I want to work for the media. I'm a foreign correspondent. I'm not a press secretary. There's nothing against press secretaries, but stop trying to make me a press secretary. Would you ever say that to a guy who had covered all these things? I don't think you would. You wouldn't be like, oh, you should go be someone's secretary. Um, so I finally kind of, I snapped at someone finally last year where they're like, you know, you should really consider a comms role at the UN. And I was like, I did not cover a mass grave to become a comms officer. Again, nothing against comms officers, but it's one of those things where it's like, come on, you know, like I'm trying to really do this. And I think it's just about innovation to a certain extent. That's why I do photo, video, audio, writing is because you can hire me for anything. Yeah, um, I, I, I do think that's part of it because the demands on where people, it's not, you know, 50 years ago, it was you get in the paper, right? That was it. And then you had magazines for a little while that started taking over some of that, some serious magazines. But, um, you know, for me personally, it's people like you that I feel thankful for because it is hard. I mean, when Kelsey went to, on some of his trips, uh, any of them, you know, I've talked to him about what he experienced and what he saw. It, it, it does something for me because I have a, you know, a kind of a standard uh, eight to five or sometimes five to 10 <laughs> a day, a day job where I'm, I, I can't go do those things. Right. I mean, I could, there's always that sort of give up the life I'm in and go do something else. But for me to learn for and be empathetic about and, have an understanding of something as complex as, as what's happened in so many different countries when you hear about um, immigration and uh, just uh, everything that goes with, you know, something happening in one country affecting other countries. And it is impossible to get a hold of all that, but it, it, it is important to read about those things. But I don't know how you're going to do that if that industry goes away. And I'm thankful for people like you because you give me the chance to learn it. And Kelsey, too. I mean, he's He's provided that to me in his three books as well, and I hope he will in his next one. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I constantly wonder year to year if I'm going to have a job, right? And I just, again, maybe this is because my family came from a family of refugees, so I'm constantly like scurrying things away any possible way I can. And even in like the biggest heyday, eating, you know, a pretty 
humble meal or making sure that I save because you just never know. And especially as an American, I have student loans and it's like, you constantly have US bills to pay even if you're being paid in a local currency or even if you're getting paid local rate, you're like, my student loans aren't a local rate. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty dire. I think about it on a regular basis, but I think that there's always going to be news just how it survives is gonna be hard, and especially for smaller local publications domestically in the United States and internationally across the world. Well, you can, you, can, you can have some peace in the fact that you've contributed to something that's such a big picture. And if you change careers tomorrow and fly home and take on some sort of normal, <laughs> what someone would call a normal life, what you've experienced so far has benefited many, many Thanks. people. I think that's important to remember because for most people, by the time they're 30, they've worried about getting their first mortgage under their belt, right? <laughs> uh, that's what Kelsey oh, and I did. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm more afraid of a mortgage than anything else. Like, like mortgage and children, it's more <laughs> daunting to me yeah. than like anything else. So. Yeah. Yeah. Skip both of them. <laughs> it's so much more fun without them. <laughs> and I mean, we... I think. Go ahead. I, I was, I think on that note too, about sometimes why you do it and how to stay into it. As I think representation is so important. And as a woman, as a foreign correspondent, as a woman in Southeast Asia, as a woman with a bunch of tattoos who wears red lipstick, right? Like people often see me and they're like, oh, are you the new, you know, HR person or you knew this? I'm like, no, I'm your new foreign correspondent for Southeast Asia. And how I must feel that compared to how a woman of color must feel, how a LGBT person must feel, right? I think it's so important for everything you do as a woman journalist to help pave the way for the women behind you and the people behind you. So I think about that a lot too. Um, because while we're making some advancements in that, it's still mostly, sorry again, like old white guys that run things. And that is not how the world should receive its news. And the world needs to receive its news from a more diverse source. Um, so again, I'm a white American, but I am glad that I'm at least a woman so I can Kind of speaking for the speaking for the old white guys, I've learned from people unlike myself more than any other type of person in the world. It's fantastic. Um, there's so many things in the past 20 years that have been uh, that have made that so true. So great, bring it on. Uh, more You're a good one, Jay. Yeah. Oh, I know. I, You're a good old tell, white guy, I tell people that all the time. He's one. Of my, he's actually one of my favorite old white guys. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Kelsey. <laughs> yeah. So what do you tell, I mean, I, I, I'm totally sold on like this being a path that people can uh, make it make a difference in. I mean, we so critical to um, staying informed and compassionate and empathetic for our fellow human beings. What, what do you tell a student who is interested in pursuing this career path? Um, well, it's hard, right? Because you never know someone's socioeconomic background and their obligations at home. I think a lot of people are students because in Western society, you have to be a student now or you stand no chance at a lot of different jobs. Um, but I mean, so when I was a student, I was the only person in my grad class at Maryland who had to work, who didn't have parents supporting them, who had obligations and bills, right? So when our teacher was like, okay, we didn't finish this assignment today, so let's do it midnight tonight. I would immediately raise my hand and was like, I have to work until 1 a.m. I work at a restaurant, right? Um, 
So I think it's hard to give blanket advice because you just never know what people have to deal with or what they're going through or if they have something to eat that night. And I was so incredibly privileged that I worked at bars and restaurants that were like constantly busy and I was constantly just getting cash in my pocket at the end of the night. And I was able to pay my way to go to Myanmar the first time. I was able to pay my way to go to different journalism conferences and things like that. But it's almost impossible to start out as a journalist unless you, you know, live in a smaller town making $30,000 a year, working at your small local newspaper, which probably isn't hiring because they're doing layoffs. I think the biggest advice I have for people is that it's going to be really hard unless you come from a privileged background and then that's great. Use your privilege for good. Um, but there are ways to do it. And I think especially for people who want to be a foreign correspondent, again, it's such a privileged position, but you just got to be there. You just got to go. Like if you want to cover the Balkans, go to the Balkans. If you want to be a Latin American correspondent, learn Spanish, go to Latin America. Um, but again, that's why we have so many barriers to entry in this industry. And that's why there's not more diversity in this industry, especially with like long lasting socioeconomic issues that exist in the United States and continue to exist under the current system. Um, but if you have the means, just go. I think reading a lot, like you always see every journalist I see, like the really old school ones in the newsroom in the mornings, you walk in and they all have their face in a newspaper. And I think that's just really charming and very old school, whereas the rest of us are like on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, but yeah, I mean, study up on something, become an expert, don't go to the most popular thing, like don't go to Iraq right now, there's a million other journalists way better than you that are at Iraq. Why don't you go to, you know, Malta and see what's going on in Malta? Why don't you go to the Philippines and go see what's going on in the Philippines? So just find something you actually care about because it's gonna drive you crazy, so you might as well care about it. Well, that's great advice. Well, uh, anything, anything else that you want to add or, or chat about? Is... Not in particular. I'd say everyone should go visit Myanmar. I'll say, you know, despite all the things you might read about in the news, I think Kelsey can talk about the fact that, like, it really is a magical, wonderful place that is worth going to. Just make sure you're a smart consumer when you're there. And everyone should just wash their hands and stay home for the next few months. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and uh, yeah, thank you. Finding, finding something to be curious about and pursuing those questions and you know, doing your best to make a difference. Uh, you're definitely good people and we're so thankful to know you and thanks for coming on our tiny little corner of the podcast world. Yeah, an international podcast. Thanks for having me. So Jay, that was Victoria, and I was lucky enough to, um, right when I arrived in Myanmar, for her to like meet up for uh, dinner or beer, I don't remember what we did, um, and for her to kind of give me the lay of the land, and just, just you know, she's pretty remarkable, and mm -hmm. I really appreciate the perspective that she has on the world. What do you think? Yeah, uh, you know, it was a reminder to me, uh, you know, that, that, how important the role of the press is. She has really seen some horrific and reported on some horrific stuff. Um, you know, just just witnessing or traversing the land to get to and get through the people and and um, uh, the situations and the events that she's reported on. Um, will those stories have made it out of some of those places without the press? I mean, that's true in the United States, but in some of these areas with uh, oppressive regimes, 
um, she's really risking life and limb to, to share these stories with the world. And not only does she bring some sort of empathy to, you know, all of us who aren't there, right? She's helping us. You know, she's sharing the story of the people that have been victimized or killed or, or, or you know, help to bring change in those areas because those things can't remain secret. The press has to, to vet out and share what's happening. And I, I was just moved by that especially at her young age, I was moved by that, that she's done so much of that so far in her career. It's impressive. Right. I mean, it kind of um, it makes me fearful for the future with the, the, you know, the challenges that the press and media faces. I mean, they just closed the news museum in, in Washington, D.C. And I, was, I visited there and it was this amazing place. It had like um, one whole wall, giant wall of all the reporters that have been killed in so many years of like reporting all these different stories, like the sacrifices people make to bring us these really important stories that we would not know otherwise. I mean, the, the Burmese government is not going to be reporting on their own genocide. Like if there's not no. the outside forces and people in the country are going to be reluctant to say anything because they could be killed or put in prison where if you have someone like Victoria who's from you know the United States this social organization like you know yeah. she has they have she has to be treated a little bit differently and a little bit more protected uh, so yeah. without folks like her how do these stories get reported I, I don't think they do and it really frightens me that just the business model I mean, to me, this is a social good that should be funded by <laughs> not just business. Um, yeah. But uh, so, yeah. I, well, it I, does. It, it does speak to how fragile it is. And when you have a leader and I won't use a name, but uh, if you have a leader of a nation that calls them the enemy of the people, right? It's a fragile state these people live in and it is dangerous. And you hear dictators and sociopaths all over the world using that sort of language to discount the stories coming out of their corrupt um, administrations. Um, it's a way to silence voices. Um, it's really our fourth branch of government and should stay that way. But um, people like her who have spent their lives doing it, um, we're in their debt. Yeah, for sure. And I, I kind of feel like it's a public, it's a public good. It's uh, um, a way that someone that's looking to live a purpose-filled life or give back their time and their talent should consider a career in journalism. And it's kind of brave to step out into those waters because it's, you hear that it's a dying industry or mm -hmm. it's hard to make a living. And um, one of the, one organization that I don't, I didn't write about them. I don't think in where my, or my giving, but I, I came across this organization called 80,000hours.org. So I highly recommend any listener go to that 80,000hours.org and take a test of like what you're good at, what you're interested in. And it kind of gives you uh, an idea of careers that you could make a difference in. And it's, it's mm. uh, an effective altruism organization. So it's like very quantifiable and kind of what they're directing you to do. Um, and I know one of some of the, the, fields that they'll send people towards are like things like Victoria's doing. I mean, it's a valued a course to a career to make a difference, a positive difference in the world, certainly. Yeah. Um, I was also interested in, in how she got to do what she did. You know, like she said, oh, I have to go to grad school. 
because I can't get an internship anywhere. So she went to grad school and then she ended up going to Myanmar because of, um, she got a connection at a local publication there, English. Yeah. And she was going to do photography and they said, can you write? She said, well, yeah, I guess. Sure. And that's not something the guidance counselor is going to tell you. Um, you know, a guidance counselor never told me that what I do is possible. It's like someone that just wants to do it enough that starts to do it. And it kind of made me think of Anderson Cooper a little bit. You know how Anderson Cooper got his start? I don't. I mean, you know, he's like, uh, what's, what's the Vanderbilt lady's name? That's his mom. Was his mom? Oh, yeah. Uh, Vic, I don't know. Is it Victoria? I was going to say Victoria. Is that, that doesn't sound right. Gloria. Gloria. Gloria Vanderbilt. Gloria Vanderbilt. <laughs> yeah. Victoria so, was our guest. We're so up on it. Yeah. <laughs> and anyhow, so Anderson Cooper, uh, who comes from this, like, you know, family full of wealth and, and privilege, the Vanderbilt family. Um, he wanted to be a reporter for this news program called Channel One that used to, when I was in junior high, would get, um, the, we'd have like 10 minutes. It would be Channel One. It was like a teenage or people in their 20s, like news reporters at Anchor Desk. And, and they didn't have anyone that was a, a global correspondent, but he wanted to be that. So he asked them, hey, I want to do this thing. And they're like, no, uh, you you." We're not going to send you these places. We're not going to do these things. It's too dangerous. So he's like, screw it. I'm going to go do it. I got that Vanderbilt money anyhow. So he went and did it. And so he shot video with like a, back in the days of tape. And then he would mail them the video. And, and then they just started to air them. And there was all these amazing places of Anderson Cooper and all these conflicts like reporting from around the world because he just went out and did Just because he wanted to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all don't have Vanderbilt money um that is true uh i didn't have vanderbilt money i had definitely had lots of privilege you had grandma money didn't you i had grandma money i had five thousand dollars uh investment from grandma but you're just going out and doing it if you're able not everyone is in a position where they are able to do that but um you know i did i found her journey interesting too she found a way like she didn't necessarily have even the resources that i had and support that i had financially to go and do the work uh, but she found that way to do it and she's still doing it. And that's pretty yeah. admirable. Yeah. Well, and as usual for a lot of our guests, she's, she's at least from my perspective, young to be doing what she's doing. She just turned 30 as she explained to us and being an associated press reporter, um, not to mention, and you know, the world is, is certainly different in, in all, you know, each, each country has its own issues, but, uh, as a, a woman and as a white woman in a lot of these places, um, you know, she's, she's, um, courageous to to do that and to do that at her age um yeah again at 30 boy that's uh it's not like she's you know has 50 years of experience in the in the field she's not been doing this long and um that's impressive for me i've had that question before uh from students about my books so like would you have done this if you were a woman or how would it have been different hmm. and i don't know i mean i'd like to say that you know it's um it, it it's would be the same for a woman to go out and have these same experiences. But, you know, the reality is that often uh, there's a greater risk. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Depending on the place for sure. Yeah. And I, I think about, you know, Harper, when she grows up, uh, you know, I hope that we raise her in a way that she wants to go out and travel around the world and have these experiences. But then I'm like, as a dad, I'm like, Oh boy, will I be, you know, comfortable with her? Yeah. Um, you know, some of the places that she could go that could be not as easy as it was for me 
Mm-hmm. Um, so to her, for Victoria to be such a great example for Harper or other uh, young women, uh, I think that's really great. Mm-hmm. I agree. I also found it interesting. She uh, thinks some of the th- things that she said about um, being a millennial, you know, when she was a kid, 9-11 happened. Uh, where she would remember it, and then the financial crisis happened, like right when she would have been like entering the workforce, uh, and now COVID nineteen, and just how that has shaped her worldview and kind of skepticism. Um, I, I I I don't really know what else to say about that other than like I I think that's quite an interesting generation. Yeah, I, yeah I've never really heard it said like that about millennials and of course you know every generation has its moment or moments that has crafted who they are and you know how they see the world um it will be interesting to see how you know i i'm on the you know the the back part of my career you're kind of at the you know the top end of yours she's hers is still up and coming what's the world going to look like after this this worldwide quarantine and the amount of deaths that will happen what will be different about reporting and about the world that needs reported on after this is over. And I hope she's still engaged in doing it. Um, and, and how do those world of, how do those major global events like impact their perspective and their work? Cause I feel like, you know, I was born in 79, like the eighties and the nineties were relatively, yeah, you know, not tumultuous times. Yeah. Definitely more selfish. Kids. Definitely from a kid's perspective, you know, and, but then, you know, September 11th happened, the financial crisis, a lot of people felt that. And then now COVID-19, every, everyone alive is going to remember these moments. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So I I think it was uh, a really great talk with her and I'm, I'm thankful that she took time in her home in Jakarta trapped to chat with us on our little good people podcast. Yeah, I uh, I did think it was interesting. She said that um, the uh, life just keeps going there, right? I mean, people are still out trading and working and uh, um, the sort of timeline on um, places like that will be interesting to see. It's tough enough here, but, um, you know, the government hasn't locked everything down. So I hope she stays safe and um, it will be interesting to follow up with her after this, uh, after oh, this, sure. the curve yeah. is flattened. Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting too to talk to someone who is, um, you know, a, a from one of, one of the, a developing country, for lack of a better term, uh, and how they're how they're viewing this because often they are handling much realer realities, mm-hmm. I guess, much harsher realities on just a regular basis in their lives, and then than we are used to. Like for us, this is like this feels like this great burden and this time that yeah. we'll never forget but it's it's um you know we're not refugees not yeah that <laughs> yeah i was talking to my wife about this today but i've been following uh preemptive love which you know they're doing charity work and housing and um placement for syrian refugees and you think it's tough here boy when you see the videos of them trying to isolate people and and uh, yeah. uh camps um it's frightening and and to see what this looks like and what we've learned about it 15 years from now is going to be uh, there's going to be study um i just uh just can't, can't help but think this is uh this crisis means more to us than we probably realize yeah it's going to say a lot of things yeah 
Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad we got to talk to her and I got to meet her. Thanks for bringing her forward. And um, I already connected with her on Facebook. So I'm going to be Facebook. So I'll be watching her. Oh, man. She's going to get stalked by a J now. Oh, oh I know. It's t- that's well, gonna... that's kind of the outcome of these podcasts. I'm going to get blamed for it. <laughs> All right, Jay. Until next time. See you, Kelsey. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Good People Podcast. Special thanks to my friend Jay Mormon for co-hosting and to Cliff Ritchie for the great tunes. You can listen to Cliff on Spotify or find him at cliffritchieyart.com. Let's keep the good going. Please share, rate, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you. Visit kelseytimmerman.com slash people to find show notes, suggest guests, learn more about my books, and tell us about the good you are doing in the world.